We're doing the 70s again, my favorite decade. And uh, uh, we're talking about The Sting, as you already mentioned, released December 25th, Christmas Day, 1973. So we're celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. It was directed by George Roy Hill, written by David Ward. And, of course, it stars the iconic duo tandem of Paul Newman and Robert Redford, also with Robert Shaw, which we'll talk about in a moment because it uh, actually got him jaws. Uh, the Sting swept the Oscars that year. It won seven Oscars, including Best Picture, uh, also director, writing, art direction, costume, editing, music. It was nominated for three more, including Robert Redford, and this was actually the only film that Robert Redford was ever nominated for an Academy Award, wow. uh, this time for Best Actor. Some other uh, uh, firsts, if you want, Julia Phillips, who was one of the film's producers, became the first woman to be nominated for and win an Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, the director, George Roy Hill, became the first director ever to helm two films that grossed $100 million each, the other being Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, this was the first Universal Studios film to win Best Picture since All Quiet on the Western Front in 1930. Mm. That's a pretty uh, dry spell for Universal uh, that they overcame. Anyway, adjusted for inflation, this film would be the 19th highest grossing film of all time. It was the fourth highest grossing film in history at the time, right behind The Exorcist, which ironically was released the same week. Uh, so uh, a lot of uh, interesting firsts in, in awards for The Sting. Originally, the script was uh, written as a much darker tale of con men on the take, and George Roy Hill uh, envisioned a much more playful homage to the old Hollywood gangster films of the 30s, and so he significantly lightened it up uh, to the point where you know it's really actually considered a comedy uh, at this point. Now, speaking of comedy, ironically... Uh, Paul Newman was uh, kind of told that he couldn't do comedy or that he didn't have the, the right uh, chops for comedy films. Uh, he didn't have a light touch and so forth. But uh, so part of the reason that Newman wanted to play uh, in this film was to prove that he could play comedy. I don't really agree with the whole notion that Paul Newman can't do comedy or, or can't do uh, a light touch, but uh, that was sort of uh, his um, stigma at the time, if you want. The score of the film was Scott Joplin's ragtime compositions, and that brought them back into the popular culture. Uh, even though those were composed sort of between 1900 and 1910, you know, about 25 years before the story of The Sting takes place, um, it, they used them anyway because George Roy Hill felt that despite that sort of uh, anachronism, the lightness and tone of Joplin's music perfectly captured that playful tone that I already said he was going for. And uh, you know, the, the ragtime compositions sort of became a, a new thing, a new popular thing in American culture. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the, the song The Entertainer that was featured in the film um, became a smash hit and reached number three on the Billboard charts in 1974, some 72 years after it was written. Hmm. So uh, it had a, a whole new appreciation for that kind of music as well. With us is Joe Fortunato, film study professor, film school um, the Sting, and when you go to the billboards of the movie, which is really interesting, Joe, and I know you're going to take and run with it here, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Robert Shaw, and many people in today's world think Newman, Redford, 
Robert Shaw, why is he on the lead? But this was big to have him there, and as you said, really opened the door for his next big role. Yeah, and, you know, um, they they re- producers David Brown and, and Richard Sanick, who produced this thing, really enjoyed working with Robert Shaw, and hence they recommended him to Spielberg for Jaws, which they were also producing. So it's really because of his his role in the sting uh, that he um, uh, got the part in Jaws. And uh, actually, Lawrence Olivier was originally considered for that role before it went to Shaw. Uh, some other casting fun, Jack Nicholson turned down the role of Johnny Hooker, uh, before uh, and that was Redford's role. Before Redford changed his mind and decided to play it, Warren Beatty uh, also turned down that role. Um, and uh, so you know there was a, a some fun there. Uh, Edith Head. I don't know how many uh, of our listeners know who that is, but Edith Head was one of the legendary costume designers in Hollywood history, and she won her eighth and final best costume uh, design uh, Oscar for this film. And she said. In her speech, just imagine dressing the two handsomest men in the world and getting this, um, which was kind of fun. Uh, talking about uh, Robert Shaw, during the film, he actually, or before the film, I guess I should say, he injured his knee and incorporated the resulting limp into his performance. He had uh-huh. split some ligaments in his knee after slipping on a handball court at the Beverly Hills Hotel uh, just a week before filming start. So he had to wear a leg brace. Uh, and uh, he kept it hidden under the, you know, kind of wide 1930s-style trousers that they wore. But uh, that limp was uh, not just a random characterization. He had actually injured himself uh, before before shooting start. Joe, when, when you look at Redford and Newman on screen, it looks like they really got along with each other, not only in this one, but you go to Butch Cassidy and the, and the Sundance Kid. What do you know about their relationship? Was it as good as it looked on film? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it was always competitive, and that's kind of to be expected with stars of their magnitude. Um, in fact, they were each paid an equal uh, $500,000 for their their role, which at the time doesn't sound like much now, but at the time was the highest rate for an actor working at the time. So mm. they each uh, earned that same amount. Uh, and, uh, of course, they, they both got... Uh, you know, top billing credit, and um, uh, they had already done previously uh, Butch and Sundance. So, you know, I suspect if, uh, although money talks, right? So <laughs> I, I was going to say I suspect if they didn't uh, enjoy each other's uh, company, they wouldn't have done it. But yeah. uh, uh, we know that's not always the case. But for all intents and purposes, I think that they were they were friendly, and and you know their their um, on screen camaraderie uh, really shows. You know, one other uh, mm-hmm. kind of fun story, another dubious moment, if you will. This is a little bit more Oscar history than uh, related to this film, but it's kind of a fun little asterisk to, to uh, our trivia here today. Um, a lot of people might remember the famous moment in Oscar history where there was a streaker across the stage. And so this is just prior to the award for the Sting. It was Elizabeth Taylor was presenting the Best Picture Oscar for this film, which or for the film, which would, this one would win, and at that time, uh, <clears throat> just before that happened, the streaker darted across the stage, and David Nimmin gave his famous quip about the the guy uh, showing off his shortcomings. But then <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor came up and 
She goes, I'm, I'm really shook. <laughs> so it was the streaker happened right before the Sting won, won their Best Picture Oscar. <laughs> I love that.